This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Now, this is a surprise, a real nice surprise. <laughs> Welcome to the Voice San Diego podcast in partnership with NewsRadio 600 Coco. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined, as always, by Andrew Keats, Managing Editor at Voice San Diego. What's up, Andy? Not a lot, man. How are you? Fellow managing editor, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. What is up, Lopez? Hey, Luis. Coming up on the show this week, we have some updates on stories we've been following from the SDSU assault allegation to Twitter, the company. Also, there are more homeless people downtown than ever recorded. The graph is bananas and it's disturbing. We'll go over what we know and don't know. And finally, Imperial Valley Farmers at least some of them say they want to pay more for water. I was shocked at how little they do pay. We'll explain what's going on there. Our Mackenzie Elmer did that story, and it's a good one. Very interesting history and explanation. That's all coming up. Stay with us. This is a crucial time of the year for Voice of San Diego. Not because we get to have our annual Christmas party where we exchange um, delicious meals made locally as our white elephant gift. This will be your second, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm really waiting for someone to come in with like stained glass instead of something edible. We do. We do consumable. You guys get this wrong. It's not edible. It's consumable. So it can be a candle, a joint, what? A, a pack of beer. Lotion. Lotion. Well... It yeah. would be consumable, would it not? That's true. But if it, you're trying to distinguish it, doesn't it have from to be, edible. Like, somebody always brings a box of a tamales. Of it doesn't have to be tamales. It can be uh, something that just is. You know, tamales, though, <laughs> are like a local. It's like I know. a local just culture saying. around it. And okay, aside from. But, but then last year, Will Huntsbury brought stained glass <laughs> which is not consumable it's obs- anyway, absolutely not, not something consume. you consume please do not consume <laughs> stained so, glass 
when that happened, we asked Will um, if he thought it was weird as everyone was opening all the presents that <laughs> they all appeared to be edible. And what did he say, Andrea? He said, this is <clears throat> my Will voice. He said, I did think that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, this time of year is crucial for Voice of San Diego, not only because we get to exchange gifts but uh, or make fun of the gifts that people bring, but because we're aiming to raise $250,000 by the end of the month. That'll help us pay for everything next year and keep our people reporting and this fabulous podcast rolling. You can give us now at vosd.org slash podpeople, and when you do, you can drop us a little note, which... Um, I promise you, I will read. I read all of them. Mm-hmm. Do you want to help me read some of these? Because I'm not sure I can pronounce. Yeah. So we had Marius Van Wick. He said, your podcast theme makes me whistle. It is. It's a jam. It's like it's very whistleable. Like Nancy Carol <laughs> Carter says, every city and especially San Diego needs an independent news source like BOSD. Nice, Nancy. Nathan Woolman said, you guys do a great job getting to the bottom of local issues. Obviously means me. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, next one, Michael Kemmer says, VOSD is the best way to get all the wonkiness with our local gov exclamation point. Somebody's got to keep them honest. Yes, yes. So about 70% of our budget comes from people just like you. So thank you. And again, that's VOSD.org slash podpeople. When we had our Friendsgiving episode, we had our guest friend, Ryan Bradford, the writer and educator. We also talked about how Twitter, the company, would probably survive, or at least the website would survive, and it has so far. But there has been an interesting update. So I continue to believe that it's kind of like when Doug Manchester purchased the UT, mm-hmm. that the Union Tribune, the big local newspaper had been purchased by this guy who was very excited to buy it and very quickly I think learned that it's not that fun and you don't have all the power he thinks he might have had and he isn't actually able to do everything he wanted to do with it and uh, there's been an update that makes that analogy just awesome and even more pure Elon Musk has put bedrooms in the headquarters of Twitter, the company. Mm-hmm. Doug Manchester notoriously installed a bedroom what? at the top floor of the Union Tribune's headquarters when he took over. Mm-hmm. And so you could sleep? Well, oh, uh, I take that question back. <laughs> yeah. And, and I just think that's a perfect like bow tie to my analogy. You know what's a weird thing to think about? Remember when he changed the name of the paper? Yeah, UT San Diego. Remember there was a time for like two and a half years. They changed all the email addresses. Everything went to UT San Diego. UT San Diego. That like weird like scrawl that that, like an editor Uh came up with herself. Yeah. UT San Diego. Yeah. Strange time. You might remember a couple years ago, we talked about the Newland Sierra project. This was a vote in 2020. Uh, about whether to um, allow this project, this development to go forward. This is the old Miriam Mountains area, you know, wild land north of Escondido, bordered by I-15. And it's identified for the last 30 years as some place you could build thousands of 
homes, retail, all kinds of other stuff. The last effort to do that was uh, 2,135 homes they wanted to put at the development they were calling Newland Sierra, the, the nearby Miriam Mountains. It used to be called Miriam Mountains Development. They wanted to do that, got that rejected. So this went uh, ahead and it went on the ballot and voters said, no, they do not want this to go forward. Yeah, so well, the first the supervisors approved it. Yeah. And then the Golden Door Spa, a luxury spa nearby, bankrolled the collection of signatures to to send that county supervisor decision to the voters. Yeah. And that's when the voters said, nah, no thank you. Yeah, this is one of those classic uh, things that happen. And just a quick explanation People are able to buy up land in the backcountry that's zoned for very few housing units and thus is not that expensive. Mm -hmm. And then they can take that project and idea to the board of supervisors and say, we'd actually like to build a bunch of homes there. Would you approve that as an amendment to the zoning plan known as the general plan, right? That is a a tactic to make money that you buy land at this much. And then you're able to change the rules about what it's able to build there. And you suddenly make a bunch of money off of that. Right. You haven't done anything to make that land better or whatever. You just benefit from the government changing its mind about what's allowed there, right? That was rejected by the, the voters. And now we've heard that Golden Door, the entity that bankrolled all that, that fight for so many years, has now purchased that entire plot of land, 2,000 acres or so, and is going to preserve it into perpetuity. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating update. It is. It's uh, one of those like long-running things that's been like been in San Diego news for like two generations of reporters, three mm-hmm. generations of reporters. Yeah, and now it like ends very quietly. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just like like a Friday press release that Golden Door sent out. Like, yeah, we bought that property. We're going to preserve it forever. Yeah, and voters also at the same time rejected uh, a measure that would have kept the Board of Supervisors from ever making those kinds of decisions again, like allowing changes to the general plan. But um, this is an example of uh, how the sort of market can maybe take care of of some of those concerns. What does preserve it forever actually mean? Well, that's a good question. Just not let anything be built there? Yeah. Sounds like a mini Yellowstone episode happening. I think they would probably, like, I think they, they've committed to some biological sensitivity, you know, habitat preservation type stuff. There'll actually be money spent to preserve, because you, you can't preserve things by just like not touching Leaving it. it. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it actually requires some, some level of care. And mm-hmm. so they've committed to that. Um, I'm finally going to turn this uh, last update to you, Lopez. This is about SDSU and the allegation that roiled the community and nationwide, mm-hmm. um, uh, the allegation that several football players uh, assaulted a woman at a party. What happened with the update? Yeah, so we've been waiting for this decision now. Um, the alleged assault occurred in October 2021, so it's been a while. Um, police did their investigation. The school started their investigation months later after the incident was reported to them. And we've kind of just been waiting to see what the San Diego County District Attorney's Office decides based on that investigation. And they said on Wednesday that after it completed its review of all the evidence, 
uh, they will not file criminal charges in this case. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the case, this is an allegation that a 17-year-old uh, girl made. She was a high school student at the time, and she attended a college party, not on campus, but near San Diego State University. And um, she alleged that she was uh, gang raped by several members of San Diego State University's football team. Uh, she said she was left bloodied and bruised, and um, she instantly she reported the rape to her friends, and then uh, made a police report the next day. Um, so the the San Diego State San Diego State University is still continuing with their investigation, and they have not completed their investigation. Um, and there is also a civil lawsuit going on that the the woman is pursuing. So that's still going on. But yeah, basically, DA said not filing criminal charges. So the attorney, you talked to the attorney for that woman, Dan Gillian. Mm -hmm. uh, he has been talking about, look, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. They rarely or often don't make charges against these people who are accused of things like this if the victim was intoxicated, that that's mm -hmm. often a um, something they just can't get over. Um, can you shed any more light on um, what she said happened and why it might be hard for them to go after? Yeah. So, I mean, these cases, it's no secret that these types of cases are hard to prosecute. Um, when I initially wrote about this story, I was focused on what the university had done and what they were doing on their side to investigate. But I did speak to an attorney because I was curious about uh, the woman's age. She was 17 when this happened. So I was concerned with you know, whether this was statutory rape and how that, that would apply to the DA's decision um, with whether they were going to file criminal charges. And I remember speaking to an attorney who's very familiar with these types of like university-involved cases, and often they involved minors. Um, and when I told him that there was a civil lawsuit ongoing, he was like, that's just like a worse nightmare for a DA. That's the worst situation because often you want to be able to have like control with what's going on with the investigation. And so the civil lawsuit running at the same time um, provided information that probably wouldn't be out there. Um, there was like images of her diary where she was talking about how she didn't remember exactly. She didn't remember things or, um, you know, things like she was coming in and out of consciousness. So those types of things, even though to a person might speak to like, wow, there's this really violent, violent thing that she experienced and how traumatic, right? That was to a normal person, but to a defense attorney that reads like, well, she's not sure what happened. And that like allows you to build a really strong defense. Mm. Um, but in terms of like why the DA chose not to file charges, I mean, I don't- They were very explicit or it, they, they had yeah. a lot of words they, and lawyers yeah. never choose their words. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so like when a prosecutor- declines to press charges it's a tenuous situation because you've decided not to press charges you it, it is rare to come out with that decision and try to you know assert some sort of other guilt in in the situation right you know so typically they just say as little as possible um i do i do get the sense that summer stefan district attorney said a little bit more than I would typically expect a DA to say in the circumstances. Uh, in a statement, she said, quote, ultimately, prosecutors determined it is clear 
The evidence does not support the filing of criminal charges, and there is no path to a potential criminal conviction. Prosecutors can only file charges when they ethically believe they can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, they, she didn't say like, we, we, we're not sure we can make a conviction. It's not enough. Right. She's, she's kind of saying like, we actually don't think there was a crime here. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't come right out and say that, but I do think she goes beyond the typical boilerplate that I expect from a prosecutor in this situation. Um, I wouldn't say that she goes so far as to say we don't think there was a crime, but she does say prosecutors determined it is clear the evidence does not support the filing of criminal charges. And they also mentioned that police didn't. 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 When when police recommended or turned over the case. it had no recommendation for criminal charges. Um, since then, the DA's office conducted what it called a thorough review that included interviewing 35 witnesses, looking at the sexual response uh, kit uh, exam and the uh, DNA results and evidence from 10 different search warrants. Mm-hmm. As well as like video footage and yeah. different things. I think the central insight from your reporting is you were kind of like, examining what the university's response was and mm-hmm. why they didn't. And I thought the central observation really in your reporting was that they there are real impediments to them pursuing an allegation from somebody who's not a student from an incident that didn't happen mm-hmm. on the campus and that um, they have to really, uh, what was it, they, there was, what were the main sort of obstacles in them not being able to pursue uh, an investigation separate from the police, even though there was always the talk about the police not wanting them to investigate, but there was also some very real limitations Mm -hmm. into what they can do on their own. So not knowing who the victim is on on their side was like the biggest thing because with university investigations, they usually tend, they follow these like victim practices where they choose to follow whatever the victim wants to do. So when it comes to sexual assault, a victim can pursue a school investigation they can pursue something with the police or they can just opt to just get services. Like they maybe they just want to speak to a counselor and they don't want to pursue any kind of, um, you know, legal thing or school investigation. Um, but the university really needs, at least the way that they told me, is that they need to have uh, the victim participate or at least know who the victim is. And in this situation, they didn't have her name. The police department that belongs to the university, so San Diego State police officers, did have her name. But because she went to she 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 um she reported the assault to San Diego police and asked to be a confidential confidential victim, then they couldn't share as sworn officers couldn't share her name uh, with the admin side. If you think about it as like two lanes, right? You can't. They couldn't share her name with the admin side, so admin never really had a place to start. With an investigation, well, it's be very important to see what happens with the civil suit. But this is a was a major allegation, it roiled the community for a long time. Obviously, changed the lives of the victim and um, some of the accused and and people around as well. So um, we'll see what the next development is. been doing a series of in-depth interviews for the podcast for the end of the year. Uh, you've done one too, Andy, and we're collecting them so that we can roll them out. And one of them I did just a few days ago with 
Levi Giafalioni, he's a um, formerly homeless individual who is now part of the, uh, the system to try to get people out of those situations and help them. He's with the National Alliance of uh, Mental Illness. And he, uh, he talked about uh, his experience being homeless in L.A. and what, uh, I think, shed some really interesting light on what that was like. I, one of the things he talked about was how, you, how chaotic that experience is, the reality of when you're, when you're homeless, uh, the, the chaos every day. You don't know when you're going to be assaulted, when you're going to be propositioned, when you're going to deal with drugs, when you're going to be uh, hassled by the police, when you're going to be offered support, or when the you know when the person who offered you support is coming back. All these just it's just chaos constantly. And he said that homeless people um, in those situations often try to control what they can control, like they're losing control of everything. They have no control over anything, so they try to control what they can. And that it, for him was like he would just walk into traffic, like he would you know jaywalk and and force the cars to deal with him and his presence. And I thought that was a really interesting insight uh, as we continue to gather more information about what we can do about this situation, why it is in the way it is in so many parts of San Diego, and also just drive home how bad it is getting and how acute the emergency is. And now we have yet another data point. You noticed this, Andy, from the Downtown Partnerships monthly census of homeless individuals and tents downtown uh it is worse than ever yeah it's the highest number ever recorded they uh they counted they you know i think they would be the first to say that theirs is like a noisy count it's not it's not as um potentially accurate i guess as the the um annual point in time count that is a little bit um, more methodologically rigorous, but they do it every month and they do it the same way every month. And they've been doing, they record those numbers for the last 10 years. And so even if it's an imperfect me measurement system, you can see the rate of change over time. And um, so right now in November, they recorded 1,706 individuals. That is the largest number ever recorded in downtown San Diego. Um, but like what's interesting to me about it is that November was a record and before that October was a record and before that sep uh, September was a record and before that August was a record. So this is like the sixth time this year that we have a monthly count that is the highest monthly count there has ever been six times this year that has, that has occurred, um, which is maybe a uh, long way of saying there's more homeless people in downtown San Diego than there's ever been right now. We're living in the most uh, acute crisis of downtown homelessness that there has been in the time in the last 10 years. And that includes the spike that led to the, the panic about the hepatitis A outbreak, mm -hmm. right, in 2017. There's yeah. a noticeable, when you do the graph, there's a noticeable decline after that. The, the city really mobilized after the spread of hepatitis A and the alarm that we, I think, in our reporting helped raise about what was happening. And um, and then the mobilization took place on all parts of the government. Um, and then it it goes down and down and down uh, and then spikes right around- Basically, summer, towards the end of the summer of 2020, we reached like 
March of 2020 and, you know, to like August of 2020, we sort of bottom out and then we start a pronounced climb from then on until now above, (laughs) above anything we've ever seen. I think that's, that's what keeps getting me is every person we talk to, Sean Elo Rivera, Councilman Chris Kate, who's leaving uh, office, uh, Mayor Todd Gloria, uh, everybody says the same thing, which is that it is getting worse, and you it's all need to get worse, and it, you all need to deal with it. That that ratio of people who are becoming homeless versus the numbers that we're able to get into homes is lopsided and in the bad way, and um, it's only going to continue to get worse. But I still don't feel them treating it like it's getting worse. It's just like a fact. It's like a storm is coming and it's just, well, we're just going to keep going and and doing all the different things we're doing. And I I still am waiting for that paradigm shift, that sort of shift of reality to where we're treating it that way because otherwise it just feels like we're kind of accepting that that's going to happen. And it's bad and obviously – how what is it going to double? Is it going to triple? Yeah, exactly. And like at that rate, it will in the next year triple or double. Right, right. And I mean, for one, it's like just like a sanity check. Like if you are out moving about the city and it seems to you that it's the worst it's ever been, and that it's like scary to look at in terms of just the level of human misery on the streets. You're right. It is. It is the worst it's ever been. You know, if you. If you're confused because you see news stories about how much is being done and you it doesn't seem to jive with your actual experience, be okay. You're okay. You're right. It's really bad out there. Like every number we have demonstrates that that's that it's not getting better and it is is the worst that's ever been. I, I still am also obsessed with this idea that like the gap between homelessness and the lowest level of housing is so wide too. I just mm-hmm. passed a place, a studio uh, in in our neighborhood, obviously uh, a little bit more of an expensive neighborhood, but a studio apartment there was $2,200 a month. And like, wow. that's just a, that's a lot of money. And I know that there's other places that are cheaper in different parts of the community but let's say it's only fifteen hundred or seventeen hundred dollars, and you've got to come up with three or two months' rent a deposit. You've got to come up with probably six to ten thousand dollars to get into a place. We're talking about a lift that is just extraordinary, and that there's just nothing in that gap. Throughout human history, we've always had boarding homes or different uh, levels of of things above homelessness, and that that just doesn't exist here anymore. And it's it's it's. I don't see when that's changing. And in the meantime, the numbers are going to continue, continue to climb. Obviously, that's what people are thinking about the most. Uh, we heard about that a ton at our member coffee, thanks to the Diversionary Theater who hosted us in uh, University Heights. And uh, if you ever want to come to those, we're going to be doing more in our live podcasts as well. You uh, should join the group uh, that supports Voice San Diego at... Uh, VOSD.org slash pod people. That's VOSD.org slash pod people. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us.
join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. We've all been talking about the drought and water and... Are, are we going to have water? Our entire assumption in the western United States was that we could count on the way the Colorado River in particular has delivered water and flowed for hundreds of years as being the way it will continue to flow for more and we can just keep using it. But as we've learned, that was kind of an anomaly in history that we based all those assumptions on and it's no longer the case. And especially with climate change and the, and the various Patterns changing and snowfall and everything. We are not going to have as much water in the Colorado River as we used to. That is affecting Lake Mead. It got dangerously close to levels that would be considered a dead pool where they're not able to let water come out of the dam at the Hoover Dam near Las Vegas. And that that's not uh, going to turn the turbines, which then, of course, generates electricity for thousands and thousands of people. That's a big deal. It hasn't hit yet, and uh, that's good. But to prevent it from happening, the federal government convened all of the western states, tried to come up with a deal. Uh, one group agreed to sacrifice some of its allotment. It has uh, historically the like number one priority to Colorado River water, and that's the farmers and the Imperial Irrigation District. They were the first to kind of tap into it. Uh, um, what, 150, 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, because of that, just have all the water they want. Unassailable primary water. And for very cheap. So just to give you an example, they pay about $20 per acre foot of water. An acre foot is is what it sounds like. It's an acre if there was a foot of water on it. That's Mm -hmm. rather than gallons, that's how they measure water. Just to put that in context, we pay... In San Diego, farmers who get a better yeah, deal. So it's farmers in Imperial Valley and farmers here. Farmers in San Diego pay about eight hundred to eleven hundred dollars per acre foot, compared to twenty dollars. It's a large gap. It's a difference. Yeah, of rather significant measure. Yeah, so we haven't like a, <laughs> a bit forgotten a, bit. a zero, and it's like two hundred versus seven hundred, no. which would also be a discrepancy. This is twenty versus seven hundred. Yeah, and the other water district that gets a real high uh, priority. It even doesn't pay that. That's the Coachella Valley Water District. They pay about 37 to $40. Twice as much still. So that cheap water you'd think they'd love, and a lot of them do, and they mm-hmm. use it accordingly the way you would use any plentiful, cheap commodity, mm-hmm. not very wisely, right? <laughs> And there's a group of farmers there, and Mackenzie Elmer did a great job talking with several of them who want the district to charge more for water so that they and their neighbors use it more efficiently. Yeah, it seems like there's like two 
effects they're hoping for that would push in the same direction. One is if you were being charged for more water, you would have more incentive to conserve yourself, to install you know, programs that allow you to be more efficient with your water use. But also by paying more money to the district, to the, the public agency that is in charge of distributing this water, the Imperial Valley Irrigation District, that they would then have more funding to do their own conservation measures and to invest money in the system to further save uh, save water. Um, so, and you know, these are mostly farmers who have already themselves invested in their farm, and they seem to recognize that there are other farmers that are that are not that you know they've in, made their own conservation investments, and uh, some of their neighbors haven't, and so they're pushing the district to sort of move the needle by charging more money. Yeah, her piece was really good at explaining and also kind of unveiling this interesting debate, which is, do you want to keep keep the party going? Mm-hmm. Because the party is the cheap water, mm-hmm. and it's in- essentially subsidized by us in San Diego. We made a deal you know, 20 years ago with this group called the Imperial Irrigation District, where we would, for the first time in history, quantify how much water they do get put a limit on that, and we would buy what was left. And that's called the quantification settlement agreement that that quantified the water, and then we settled it. And now we buy, San Diego buys some of that water. Now, we don't actually ship water from them over here. We just- There are no like trucks, like water trucks that are like monthly shipment coming to San Diego. (laughs) Yeah. Here come the water trucks. (laughs) They just- instead of diverting it to them they divert it to us and it's not even that really it's just it's a it's mostly about paper it's, it's, it mostly happens on paper but it's yeah. millions and millions of dollars that we ship to them and that subsidizes their ability to to basically charge less than it costs for them even them to deliver the water that they do deliver to their farmers do they continue to try to make deals like that to keep propping up this cheap water or do they start charging what it costs and i think that's an interesting debate playing out there one of the most powerful agencies, to, to say the least, in, in California with water is this group, Imperial Irrigation District, this agency that oversees the water in uh, Imperial County and that um, you know decides all of these issues, has this incredible resource, which is the top priority to that water. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, McKinsey did a great job explaining that. I encourage you to check it out. You can follow all of McKinsey's environmental coverage with her newsletter. It comes out every other week. The Environment Report. You can see a pattern there, the Morning Report, the Environment Report, the Border Report. It's kind of a thing. Check the Environment Report out at vosd.org slash environment. That's vosd.org slash environment. Thanks for listening to the Voice San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. If you listen to the credits, then you are the kind of person we need. Our year-end fundraiser is the critical time of the year for us to ensure the podcast and our entire organization stays strong for the new year. Please show your support at vosd.org slash podpeople. That's vosd.org slash podpeople. There will be a link in the show notes. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrew Keats is Managing Editor. Andrea Lopez-Viafania is also Managing Editor. Nate John's our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.